Welcome to the Ian Bounsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. McMinnville, Tennessee. <laughs> yes. Home to Jack Daniels, Sadhguru, <laughs> yeah. and the birthplace of my guest today, Jeremy Wilson. My friend, Jeremy Wilson. This is a podcast brought to you by popular demand. So many people have written and said, look, you and Jeremy should have a chat and recorded and... Um, Love to hear what comes out of it. So, Jeremy, we've already been talking for about 10 minutes and it was getting so interesting. Uh, <laughs> we decided to press record. So, welcome. It's great to see you. I can see Jeremy because we're, we're doing this by Zoom. You can, you've only got the audio, but I can see him. Good to see you, Jeremy. Good to see you too. It's always a pleasure to talk. And every time we do have a chance to reconnect, we always say, we got to do this more. Yeah. And, right. uh, but we're busy and we live on opposite sides of an ocean, so it's hard. But and we both have little kids, uh, so it's always a pleasure when we can get coordinate and just have a chance to to catch up and and talk about life and the world and music. Yeah, we always say we wish we lived closer because yeah. it would be cool. Anyway, listen, there there may be some strange people who have been living under rocks for the past few years who don't know who Jeremy Wilson is. So, Jeremy, born in McMinnville, Tennessee. Cut a long story short, we were colleagues in the Vienna Philharmonic, your professor at uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville with an incredibly successful class. Tell us about your upbringing, Jeremy. Did you come from a musical background? I did, actually. Um, my, my parents both have a lot of innate musical talent, if you want to call it that. Um, things that they can do that they don't realize are rare, uh, but that, that are. Uh, and I now realize are rare. Uh, my mom grew up playing piano uh, just in, in, in her church. My, my grandfather was a, a Southern Baptist preacher and he had always wanted a, a child that was a, a musician. And so uh, they had my mother and then my grandfather shortly thereafter passed away very quickly. Uh, but his sort of last wish was that my mom would become a musician, so she did and uh, played in the church, never really did anything with it other than that until uh, she and my dad got married and they were uh, struggling and didn't have a lot of money as newlyweds. Uh, they were quite young, 18 and 22. And uh, my dad, uh, my, my mother found out that my dad could sing beautifully. <laughs> and he has the most amazing, silky tenor voice, effortless, and I've never heard him sing out of tune in my entire life. Um, I think had if he had had musical training, he would probably would have you know had some sort of perfect pitch or something. He has just amazing ears and an amazing voice. But he grew up in a family that was essentially a musical, and so as they were dating and got married, she had no idea that he could do this. She caught him singing one day and goes, "We're going to monetize that," and so essentially they became wedding singers. And, uh, and also started a, a gospel quartet where my mom played piano and my dad sang one of the, the tenor parts. So I grew up uh, listening to essentially uh, four-part harmony religious music and the great love songs of the 1970s and 80s. Um, 
you know, cherish the love and the, the things from the carpenters and, you know, all the cheesy uh, up where we belong, all of the, all the cheesy love songs of the 1970s and 80s. I heard them singing all this because that's what they would go sing at, at weddings. That's amazing. Jeremy, we've known each other for 15 <laughs> or 16 years. I didn't know that. That's yeah. I never realized we had that in common. I love the Carpenters. <laughs> I, I, I think Karen Carpenter's got one of the great voices. And I, the I agree. Great melody carrying voices. That's right. All That's right. All of, the, all of the opera singers that we heard, she's, you know, I would put her in in that absolutely incredible. I didn't know that. That's yeah. Really, really cool. I, so so I'm, I was just swimming in uh song and melody um and uh you know i i think that has had a huge influence on everything i've done musically since then um and they would they would take me along to all these weddings they would take me along to all these gospel singings and revivals and things on the weekends in these tiny little country churches in the middle of nowhere in rural tennessee and alabama and kentucky and um you know, they would bring me up on stage to sing a little tune or two as a four-year-old or a five-year-old. Um, and uh, so that was that was my upbringing. Well, that, that's, well, we could probably stop that podcast right there. Um, folks, <laughs> that's probably the most important part of the podcast. I had a similar upbringing in that um, my mom sung mm -hmm. every minute of her life. She never, I think, I think the only time she didn't sing was when she was eating or drinking. That was it. I mean, literally, she had a tune going through her head the whole time. And so we were immersed in that sort of stuff. Um, and I remember as a kid, I remember Yellow Submarine coming out. I was thrilled. Yeah. And I still remember singing it with my mom. We used to go in the kitchen and sing together the whole day. Now, Jeremy, back to work. You know how important that is. So do I. What do you do with your 18-year-old who you take into the studio for the first time and they didn't have that upbringing? How are you going to put that into them? Yeah. Well, um, we try to create ideal conditions to catch up um, so far as that's possible. Um, I think... Uh, I actually am... The jury for me is still out on whether or not it's actually possible to fully replace mm -hmm. that um, you know, it's just, just the amount of time uh, that if a person grows up in a musical household or surrounds themselves with a musical influence of some other kind, otherwise, we're talking about 16, 17, 18 years, multiple hours a day. Um, by the time somebody, you know, uh, studies trombone seriously, let's say that they haven't had any uh, much influence of, of singing, of melody, of voice in their trombone playing until they get to me at Vanderbilt, you know, uh, it's just really hard to put that amount of time and influence in. That said, I try anyway, and um, I assign them to, to listen to wonderful singers of a lot of different genres, but you know some of the um, some of the old favorites like your Fritz Wunderlich and your uh, Dietrich Fischer Diskau and things like that, but also more modern classically trained singers like a Jonas Kaufmann or something like that. But also, you know, we try to find uh, singing that resonates with them on a human level some in some way for some students it is Jonas Kaufmann or somebody singing the Kinder Totenlieder uh for some people I have to try to find with them 
uh, another singer of another kind that that is pedagogically going to help me fill in some of those gaps, but also resonates with them on a human level. I do believe that people will be able to absorb and uh, assimilate what they've learned into their playing more if they can resonate with it on a human level in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we I assign listening to singers, uh, both actively and passively and critically. Um, and then we 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 also I sing at them a lot <laughs> in their lessons. I'm always singing. I tell them straightforward, like I'm I am not a good singer. I'm not a great singer at all. Um, but it doesn't matter. The whole point of it is that when we sing, there are the fewest amount of barriers and interference between concept and reality. Right. And so I'm going to sing at them, and I expect them over time to be able to sing with me as well. Um, some people start in year one having never really sung in front of anyone and oh, that, it, it becomes extremely stressful and extremely and, and, embarrassing you know yeah we i was going to say we both look, know that look of horror on their mm-hmm. face when you say hey could you sing that for me and it's just like, <laughs> yes deer in the headlights uh distant oh please god i'm about to vomit yeah. you know but i can't sing but 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 you have to <laughs> but you have to and so right now in some cases, I, I wait a little while to try to earn some relational capital so that they know I'm a safe place and they know I'm not going to like make fun of them or something. And that it has, it's not about their vocal quality or their vibrato or lack thereof or anything. It's not even about that. Uh, so I try to lead by example by singing less than beautifully so that they hopefully feel empowered to do the same thing. And we just, you know, there's just so many lessons that can be learned from that. And then, of course, we we uh, you, you may cringe when I say this because I know your stance on these, but we actually do get into the vocalises of Bordogne, um, and uh, but oh. I try to use them, but I use them not as you know. Uh, here's where you practice your big loud round sound here's where you practice your legato they're not technical exercises they are phrasing studies it's a it's a textbook into um or it's a text study into um you know the phrasing and the the rises and falls of western music and um, when, if you really go through those with that, and we, we use it, we use them as, I, I call them storytelling exercises, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because most of the Bordonis are, are ABA and some are quite repetitive, but you know, we work on that. A, a lot of the first year is, is storytelling. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not the Bordoni's fault that they've been abused. That's my right. problem with it is that by right. the time, most of the time, by the time a student comes to me with a Bordoni, the music has been removed, removed for it. And this That's right. studio musicality has been superimposed. And so, so if you can get down to the basic, they're just simple phrases, of course. You know, exactly. Yeah. I, I, think, I think they've been used, especially in America, as essentially exercises right. uh, to work on your legato, your slide technique, your flexibility, whatever it may be. Um, but I think that's the, <laughs> those things are, are the, the hardware and the music, the art that we want to make, the stories we want to tell are the software. And I think we have to work on the hardware elsewhere. Absolutely. Hey, okay, let's go back to McMinnville. What was your first <laughs> trombone, Jeremy? What instrument was it? It was a Yamaha student model. I don't know the model number. I still have it somewhere up in the attic. Um, uh, but it was, they were very good student trombones. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was five or six hundred dollars. My parents actually bought it uh, rather than renting, and uh, I used that for two years. 
Mm-hmm. I think we've all got one of those in the attic. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that may be the best-selling trombone of all time. I don't know. You it know was it was really good, yeah. and it had the molded plastic case um, that was you know had a very slim sort of profile, so you could carry it around with you on the school bus or down the hallways, and you know wasn't lugging you know weighing you down. What was your first large bore trombone? It was a Con 88H. Mm-hmm. Uh, that well, you, had, uh, you had the standard upbringing there, didn't you? I did. I'm a student model into the Con 88H. I did. I did Con 88H, then I did a Bach 42, oh. uh, and then I got my Edwards. Um, yeah. I, 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 the, the, the Con 88H had, had been uh, done and redone many times. Uh, I, I think it had been stripped and refinished a lot. And so the, the the bell had gotten quite thin and there was some rust and red rod and th- things that I didn't know what to really look for. Uh, but it was a really great intermediate horn essentially from, um, from probably age 13 to about 15. And wh- how old were you when you... Uh when you realized that this this was a serious love? How old were you when it was like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do? I was in eighth grade, uh, which here in the States puts me at about 13 years old, mm. uh, maybe 12, 13. Um, and uh, I, I had gotten into an honor band festival at the University of Tennessee, which is actually where I ended up going for my undergrad degree. Um, and it was a huge thing. They had put together six honor bands of middle school students. And um, so it wasn't very exclusive. It didn't take that much to get into it, but I got into it somehow via audition. I forget how we even auditioned. <clears throat> and on that trip, uh, I just had a wonderful time playing with other serious musicians. I got to meet students from all over the state. Um, and one of the activities that we did with the group of students was we went to the movies and saw uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, uh, which was this film starring um, Richard Dreyfus um, about uh, uh, an orca. He was a composer who, uh, who as a backup job, took a, a you know a a job as an orchestra conductor at a, a local high school and ended up staying there for 30 some odd years. He spent his whole career there as an orchestra uh, director and not to spoil the movie or anything, but uh, you know, he at the end of it, he finds out that actually his life's work, his great magnum opus was all the lives that he touched as a music mm-hmm. educator. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees all these people that he's worked with and that he's influenced their lives for the better. And at, even as an eighth grader, I'm sitting back in the theater just sobbing and that for me was a was a really pivotal moment that I can still remember where I said that's what I want to do I want to be a music educator and um, I interrupted your career in that regard didn't I you've made it you back did. now but I'll tell you what, I re- I've realized something um Jeremy I'm, I'm gonna wade in here and, and tell them that part of the story mm-hmm. I've realized I mean whatever I may be as a trombonist or an orchestral trombonist or, or a pedagogue I know what I'm looking at or listening to. I can pick them. I can pick kids. I, I've seen it in the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra. People, mm-hmm. people say, you know, I was a bit surprised you put that one in, Nicky. You know, and like two <laughs> years later, they've got a big job. You know, and yep. oh, I told you. And for those of you who don't know this story, I was um, judging an ITF competition, mm-hmm. um, probably 2007, 2006. 2006, like yeah. 2006 
And we had been having difficulty finding a second trombone in the Vienna Philharmonic. And um, we'd had a couple of auditions and not taken anyone. And I was listening to, I was <laughs> listening to um, these, this competition. Back then it was CDs. You got sent mm -hmm. CDs. And um, I heard one. I think it was CD number three. I thought, wow, forgive me. This is not an American. This is a European. This, this whoever this is, great, lovely, warm sound and the clarity. Every note was played clear. It was just really lovely articulation. I thought, I don't know who that is, but I think they'd stand a really good chance in our next Vienna Philharmonic audition. So I contacted um, the organizer of the competition who, unbeknown to me, was actually your teacher, mm -hmm. Vern Kagerais. He was organizing. I said, Vern, could you tell me who candidate number three is? And he said, that's highly irregular. You can't do that. Because, <laughs> can I, you know, I'm wanting the, the contact information of someone taking part in a blind competition. And I explained, I said, well, look, I think they're going to do really well in our next. And he went, oh, well, in that case, let me have a look. And he kind of went, what, Jeremy? <laughs> and, and He didn't and, believe and, it. And Jan was saying, I knew it was Jeremy. I knew it was going to be Jeremy. And... And so anyway, that's, that's how it started. And I was, I was bloody right. It, you won it. You know, it was like, <laughs> that, I think whoever that is, is going to win. And I remember there being a bit of a furor at, at the time because I'd coached you for the audition. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to make it really clear at this point. I don't know how, that's probably legal in the US. In Europe, it's not. There were 16 mm -hmm. candidates in your audition. I'd coached 14 of them. Mm -hmm. The only reason I hadn't coached the other two was because they never asked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and that's a very really a very Vienna Philharmonic thing. If there's an audition coming up, the people in the orchestra are kind of honor bound, you know, mm -hmm. free of charge. It's like you've got an audition coming up, I'd like to play for you. Yeah, okay, come and play for us, kind of thing. And and so anyway, we exchanged recordings or was it MP3 files yeah. or something yeah. you were sending me? I first of all like to find out what the bloody hell an MP3 file was. And <laughs> still not really know. Um, and uh, and and it happened that way. So that was kind of like you were you were running down the road or mm -hmm. hopping down the road merrily um, to become um, an educator, and I tripped you up. But it was quite a nice trip. It was a reasonable landing. Well, I I, I would never consider it a trip. I mean, it was it was. I mean, essentially, um, the only reason I I was even looking at orchestras, I wasn't really looking at orchestras. Uh, it was kind of funny because, uh, from my perspective, I had filled out a goal sheet and sort of you know set out a plan for the next few years with Vern Kagerice, and you know I had fully planned to be there for probably five years um, through a master's and a DMA at the University of North Texas. Uh, my wife and I had bought a house, you know, that was going to be the, the next few years. Mm. And as we were looking through my resume, I had done just about everything at a very high level. I had won ATW several times. That's the American Trombone Workshop, um, which is probably our biggest single sort of national uh, mm. trombone conference every year put on by the U.S. Army Band. I had won that a few times. My chamber group had 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 uh, won some things, so I had done chamber music at a high level. I was in the one o'clock lab band, so I had done jazz at a high level. 
uh, and I had I had a music education degree, so I was I knew how to teach, generally speaking. Um, Can I just interrupt there, Joe? Sure. For people listening, do you remember? Do you remember the day that you um, won the job in the Vienna Philharmonic? We we bumped into Joe Alessi. Do you remember? I do remember that. Joe yeah. was in town, and he was more impressed with the fact that you were in the one o'clock big band than you'd won the audition. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you were in the <laughs> one o'clock. Wow. Really? Wow, that's cool. You know. Yeah, but you know, the orchestra as, job, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, as we as we you know look through my resume, the only thing I had not done really ever. Uh, and definitely not at a high level was orchestra playing. Um, the orchestra program at my undergrad at that time was not very strong. Um, and I, there was something about the, if I can be a little spicy here, there was something about the orchestra culture and the orchestra excerpt culture and the orchestra excerpt teaching in America at the time in the early 2000s that really turned me off that I just had no interest in. Um, when I heard people playing excerpts, they seemed amusical to me mm. um, or maybe even anti-musical. Um, and so, uh, again, all the way up from my upbringing, music was always linked with very deeply held, strongly felt emotions. And I felt that when I was listening to people play orchestra music and orchestra excerpts in America in the early 2000s, um, I was not experiencing emotion. I, I just, I found it in chamber music. I found it in solo playing. I found it in uh, jazz. I found it in all sorts of different places, but I just had no interest in being an orchestral player. But Vern brought up the very excellent point, which is, look, if you want to be a university trombone instructor, some of the students that you're going to work with are going to want to be in an orchestra and you need to know something about that. Uh, you need to go through the process, know the excerpts, go through the auditions, know how to submit a, a resume and a cover letter and all of that. And so essentially we put it on my, um, on my, you know, goal sheet that at some point in the spring of 2007, I would, I would start taking some orchestral auditions at local regional orchestras, never thinking that it would be a major orchestra like the Vienna Philharmonic. And so most of the process, most of those few months that I was sending you, you know, MP3s and getting some uh, coaching from you and uh, learning how to, for example, play without vibrato, which we can we can circle back to, but that was very difficult for me and very painful for me. Um, <laughs> which is, but it also very revealing, you know, because I, I learned essentially that I had been leaning on my vibrato as a musical crutch for anything that I didn't know what to do with it musically, just throw yeah. a bunch of vibrato on it. That'll take care of it. Yeah. And taking that off the table made me really reevaluate my phrasing and things like that. But, you know, un un basically until I made it past the first round of the audition, uh, in Vienna, I I still considered the whole exercise as a way for me to really educate myself about how orchestra auditions work and how excerpts work. I still was thinking of it as this is going to enable me to be a great university professor someday because I've actually done this at a high level. Um, never thinking that I would actually win the, the audition until I passed the first round and it's just me and one other person left. And then there was a bit of a thought of like, okay, could you actually win this? You know, um, and and uh, so that was a very surreal moment for sure. Yeah, actually, going back to that moment, it was quite interesting. Um, 
you know, people wondering about what happens behind a curtain. Mm-hmm. I don't even recognize my own students behind the curtain. I've, sometimes I, I have like mock auditions yeah. in my own class and I have no mm-hmm. idea who anyone is. Yeah. <laughs> my own students. And th- there, was, there, were, there was you and one other person who, who I was very uh, keen on. I felt, I felt mm-hmm. we, we worked very well together. And after the first round, and uh, I spoke to my wife on, on the phone and she said, how's it going? I said, well, these two of them were just like way out there. Fanta- I mean, absolutely amazing, you know? And I said, I'm afraid it's not Jeremy and, and the other person. Uh, just really, it's, and it's not them, you know, they didn't sound anything <laughs> like them, but it's really amazing. So just in case anyone thought it was, I had, I had no idea. It was like these two guys are like, well, it's a shame Jeremy's not there because he seemed like a nice guy, but they, and look what turned out. Going back to the excerpts thing, yeah, I, I found this culture of, of, of working on excerpts to be really weird because I got a job when I was really young. The first time I saw these excerpts was actually sitting in a seat. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. actually doing the job. And um, I remember playing Brahms one for the first time in the Halle Orchestra, you know, and the, the next day the concert master came to me and said, I'd just like to congratulate you on, on you know, like what you did last night, you know, and I was like, but, but, but I didn't do anything. We had nothing to play. All I did was come, you know, it's like, what's he talking about? You know? Yeah, and, right. And I think in, in, in England, we very much had this attitude of learn to be a musician, mm. learn to read music, learn to play the trombone, understand the context of the music you are playing. That's right. Play the excerpt. If you can play the trombone, you can play the excerpt. If you understand the style, you can right. play the excerpt. That's right. You know, you don't need to go. In fact, the more you go into a room and repeat something over and over and over and over and over again, the more you are diluting the musicality that you feel or, or that is appropriate to the music. There's only a couple of things where, I mean, if I'm going to play Bolero, I'll probably play a thousand top B flats to work out the me- mechanical articulation of hitting a top B flat. Um, but other than that, it's no, it, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. If you've got any technical issues, don't work on them on, on orchestral repertoire because it'll ruin them for you. If you've got exactly. any, I mean, if you've got any musical issues, I mean, how can you, how can you practice the chorale from Brahms one if you don't intimately know the thirty five minutes that's leading up to it? It that's won't right. sound like Brahms if you don't know that. You know that kind of thing. So, no, I, I think we agree about that. That that said, it's difficult. It's the only way we can do that is to really teach somebody from the age of 14 to 22 or 24, because then you can introduce the Davi mm-hmm. to them. You can introduce, but most, you know, most students I get, even age 18, have already played all of the excerpts. And it's like, yeah. well, why have you been doing that? You know, yeah. what's the point? You, you know, and I'm really torn about it. I, I personally am really torn about it as, an, as, a, as a teacher now, um, because, you know, we still have... You know, they have uh, students that audition for Vanderbilt still have to come in and play two or three excerpts of their own choice or things like that. Um, we expect some base level knowledge of some of the major excerpts. Um, uh, and mostly we do that because everybody else also requires them. Um, and we don't want to seem weird or out of place. And also, uh, you know, any summer festival they're going to audition for or every honors orchestra, you know, anything like that, they're, they're going to uh, ask for those excerpts. But, uh, it, you know, and I'm torn because in my case, um, my story of, you know, showing up for my very first orchestral audition, having 
had very few uh, lessons ever on excerpts uh, would seem to most people aiming for an orchestral career as a huge disadvantage. And in no, my case, it turned out to a not huge advantage. Not at all. I mean, I, I mean, I remember you had to learn the David. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I never played the David till I was 24. I played it. I play, actually played the concerto with the London Symphony. And, <laughs> and, you know, the problem with a lot of going on to that David concerto, a lot of people from the German area, Mm-hmm. They practiced it when they're 12, 16, 18, and then age 22. Yep. They have to do it for real, for their dream job. And all of a sudden, that 12-year-old kid is back in the room. That's right. You know, with all of the problems and all of the issues. And it's, you know, that I have students who will play the Creston or the Tomasi like they're not there, just oh, straight through incredible. So, okay, you got an audition, let's do the David. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it ain't working, you know, because right. there's, a, there's a 16-year-old back in the room with you. So I think no leaving those the excerpts and those orchestral things as late as possible. I mean, I know. Uh, I mean, going back talking about Joe. I mean, he, one of his former students said to me basically, he went into a room and dun da da dun 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 da. Oh shit! Hang on, I'm actually dun da da dun 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 da. Is that about the right length? Yeah. There you go. So he basically did that for two years, and then Joe said, "Okay, there's an audition coming up in a couple of weeks. Go and take it, and you want it." Yeah. You know, because yeah. if you can do that perfectly, you know, it's all very it's all very straightforward if you can do that, you know. That's right. It's again it's this hardware software issue. Um uh, I think uh, unfortunately a lot of people treat the excerpts as uh, as hardware, as something that has to be hardwired in um right alongside you need you need a great tone you need great clarity you need great flexibility you need great range and endurance you need a great bolero you need a great whatever you know and it's like those things are not hardware they're software Uh, if the excerpts go well that's a symptom of everything else that's working so that's you know that's that's one of the things I'm, i'm working to try to gently but uh insistently shift about uh, some of the culture that we have here and i do see some some of that shifting um not because of me i think there's a general feeling that the way we've been doing things hasn't always been working well um or hasn't really been sustainable uh because again as you as you mentioned you get somebody who's out on the audition trail and really they've put so much work in for so many years and they actually are really great players, but then they pull up these um, neural pathways <laughs> that were laid down when they were 15, 16, 17 years old and they had no business playing William Tell or Bolero or any of that or trying to get in the emotional space of the funeral march from Mahler Three, you know, and, and they have baggage. They have baggage and anxiety and fear around it. They have bad habits. And all of that stuff, without asking your permission, your brain is just going to bring it up. And um, I will say that in my audition, the excerpt I struggled with the most was the William Tell excerpt. I had to do it twice. And back in the uh, back in the warm up room, I got so nervous that it had been asked that, you know, I was back there trying to to do it. And I was just uh, confronting my 15 year old self. It was one of the few excerpts that I actually was expected to play in high school. 
Um, when I had no business, I had I still didn't know how to produce a clear articulation at any kind of speed. And so um, I'm back in the warm-up room in the Wiener Staatsoper, and I'm trying to like start a lawnmower back there. You know, it's not working. You know, and uh, I had to do some like major like meditation, like calm your nerves, like you know, get back into that that place where you're you know you're reminding yourself what you can do and all that kind of thing. And somehow it came out in the audition, but you know, everything else felt almost effortless to me. It was really, it was, but it was the things that I had, uh, I had worked on before my body was ready for it. And that's really just basic pedagogy. Like you don't ask your students to do things that they actually can't do that are so far above their ability um, that it's going to create problems that you're going to be dealing with. They're going to be dealing with for years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, just a, just a, a slight interjection at that point. What you're saying is very valid about William Tell, but I would point out that that's the one exit that no one likes playing. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, folks, so folks, next time you have a masterclass, not with me and not with Jeremy, ask whoever it is to play William Tell for you. <laughs> it's the one exit that is not readily available to us. We have to get our heads no. down and really... I have to practice that for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's not one I can just pull out of my back pocket. Um, and yeah, and I think what you said there um, about doing things that's beyond yourself, I, I find it's very important now in the teaching room is because we always talk about imagining what you want to do, imagining almost the unattainable, having this idea in your head as to what you want to sound like. And I think it's really important to be in a position to say to a student, no, I am not asking you to run the 100 meters in less than nine seconds. Mm -hmm. That's not possible. I'm only asking you to do what you can do, but I'm that's asking right. you to do it all of the time. Yeah. And that's how you grow. That's, that's, right. how, that's how you build something. Um, Jeremy, I'd like to give you a, a chance now to um, talk about uh, two uh, of the uh, very important pedagogical influences in your life, pedagogical and personal, Don and Vern. Mm -hmm. So. Off you go. Starting with Don. How old were you when you started studying with Don? Started with Don when I was uh, 17, almost 18. Okay, at the University you tell me of Don is? Sorry. I Sorry, yeah. You. This is Don Huff, H-O-U-G-H. Um, he, uh, by the time I got to the University of Tennessee, he had already been there for multiple decades. Uh, he got that job when he was quite young and made, uh, made a career out of taking people from the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, and trying to bring them to uh, a much higher level. And, and he's got lots of successful uh, students, um, especially on the teaching side of things that are out there as very successful high school band directors or college instructors, uh, and some also in orchestras or military bands. Um, he won the Neil Humfeld Award for, for, for teaching from the ITA um, a few years back and um, was, you know, his bright shining face was on the cover. Um, and uh, he's what people nowadays would, would consider old school in some ways. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is just very no nonsense, high expectations, um, but it's born out of uh, belief in his students. So he was the person who, you know, really first pushed me rather than just accepting my, my playing as it was. And, Oh, you're so great. And you're awesome. It's like, I went in thinking I was really good. And he goes, 
okay, there's stuff there, but, um, you know, we got a lot to fix. And I, I spent my first year just doing fundamentals. You know, I felt very, I resonated a lot with, you know, yum, da, da, dum, dum, dim, da, da, dum, you know, all that. Um, he, he, there were three things that were kind of the unforgivable sins, um, in his studio. Uh, one was to not work hard, to, to, to not do your practice time. He had very strict practice expectations of everybody. Um, it, it depended on your major. If you were a performance major, he expected four hours of practice a day, Monday through Friday, uh, which I don't necessarily ascribe to or agree with a hundred percent now, but the point was he expected hard work. And I remember there was this conversation where he was asking me, when are you planning to do your practice hours this semester? And I, you know, I, I made, started making excuses about how I was too busy to really get four hours every day. Um, I have so many classes and I, and I was trying to pack a lot into that particular semester. Uh, and my curriculum was very busy. And I, you know, and he said, well, you know, what are you doing, you know, when class is over? And I said, well, I'm actually in class until 6 or 7 p.m. each day. He goes, okay, so you can take an hour for dinner and then go practice. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then I remember there was, there was one night where I had, there was a concert. Uh, why didn't you practice last night? Well, I had a concert from 8 to 10. What were you doing from 10 to midnight? Well, I, I had to do homework. I wanted to call my girlfriend, who's now my wife. You know, I, I, I wanted to be a person for a little while. Okay, that's great. What were you doing from midnight to 2 a.m.? You know, and I don't think his point was actually that he expected me to go practice from midnight to 2 a.m. or from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. The point was, if you are in that attitude of making excuses, you will always find an excuse. You will always find a reason to not practice. And if you decide um, that you're going to work hard and you're willing to do the work that it's going to require you to be good at this, uh, then nothing will stop you. And that was the point he was trying to make. And that's what he held his students to. So that was one thing. Not working hard was a cardinal sin. Uh, number two was not knowing something about the piece that you were playing. Yeah. Yeah, again, just a, a, an interjection for those people listening. If you think that's a rare thing, um, Jürgen van Rijen, um, our friend, um, he has a share of a church mm. in which several musicians practice. And he can always practice whenever he wants because he goes there at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. So yeah. He, he will do a concert, concert about concert and go and practice until... Yeah whenever he needs to to finish you know that's I mean, right when he when he sleeps i don't know but, but the, you know, the people who are really good at this you know do what it takes now i do uh i do again i've i've modified some of my own teaching that i think we do have to take into account our our mental health our physical health that you know they're not everybody needs four hours of practice every day all the time no i think there's balance but the point is the idea is like um, if you have a culture of making excuses, if you have a culture of I'll get to it tomorrow, uh, then you won't ever actually get to it tomorrow. So um, that was one thing. The second thing was um, he required all students to carry um, the unabridged version of the Harvard Dictionary of Music and Musicians on your person at all times. If he caught you on campus without it, uh, your grade would be deducted because... He wanted that if, if at any moment in a rehearsal, in a lesson, whatever, you came across a term that you didn't know, uh, he wanted you to be able to look it up immediately. Of course, this was before the age of smartphones, um, or I guess on the very cusp of the age of smartphones uh, in the early 2000s. Um, if, uh, you know, tell me about this composer. 
I don't really know that much about them. Okay, we're going to stop the lesson. You're going to look it up immediately. So he was all about um, knowing what you need to know to be a competent professional musician and also context, as you were saying. Context is everything. Um, if you if you laid into a French piece as if it were Wagner, that was no good. If you laid into Wagner as if it were Von Williams, that was no good. If you laid into Iwazen as if it was Dubois, that that's no good. Um, you had to understand uh, the context of the pieces. So everybody had to carry their Harvard Dictionary. Um, and the third uh, cardinal sin was to give up on a musical phrase. Um, I remember my first performance that I gave in front of the whole school. We had this whole school convocation that we would do once a month in my undergrad. And I played the Guimau Morceau Symphonique. And I was so proud of myself because like I didn't miss any notes and I got the high D flat and I was so excited as a 18 year old. And, and he just, he came uh, to the side of the stage and he was like, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. But those phrases at the beginning where you, you, you know, you didn't lean into the, to the chromatic alterations and, and, you know, you gave up on the phrase and you didn't finish the phrase, you know, that was, that was his expectation. Like you have to serve the music and you have to do what the music needs uh and what the music's asking from you and i guess if i added a fourth one it would be um he expected professionalism even from year one um you had to have your date book um if somebody came up to you and said hey i have a an opportunity for you it's on you know october 18th at 5 p.m can you do it you needed to be able to tell him right then and there can i do it can i not do it you had to have your calendar on you and be able to commit to it and all of those things you know um and so um there were times that I didn't like him very much. Uh, and there were times where I felt like he was really hard on me, uh, maybe undeservingly. Um, there were times that um, I felt like he was holding a higher standard for me than some of the other students. It wasn't until later, until I became a teacher, that I realized that was because he he thought that the sky was the limit for me. Mm-hmm. And he thought that I was capable of a lot of things. And so those those times where he was hard on me or those times where he expected much of me when all i really wanted was a pat on the back um were were him telling me that hey you've got a lot of really good things ahead of you and i'm so grateful for that time would his teaching methods be acceptable today or would he have had to have modified them that's a loaded question, but, uh, I think most of them would have been, would have been acceptable today. I think some of his hardline, um, practice expectations, um, probably would not be met with a lot of enthusiasm now. Um, and I understand that, uh, like I said, those are not the expectations that I have for my students. Um, again, we find other ways to create a culture of hard work and, um, the students that I tend to get, um, I, I usually I have more conversations telling them that they need to take a day off. Yeah. Um, you need a break. Yeah. Uh, I usually have the opposite problem. But um, in that context, for that school and those set of students, that was that was really needed. And um, but I don't think that would be met, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm now. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I. I, I, I think most everything else would, uh, would and, and in fact does live on in a lot of different college trombone studios uh, from people that came from under his sort of teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think over the years, I mean, I, I saw recently a, a, um, 
a presentation by apparently the world's greatest brass pedagogues in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And, and they were massive names. I'm not going to go into it. I and, and it just struck me how far we've come. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, it's like, wow, that was really the pinnacle of brass teaching then. And, and <laughs> of course, I mean, one of them in particular was outstanding and he's the legendary one. Mm-hmm. But, sure. but, you know, it, it's just like we work, we work, we work, we work. We try and improve. We try to understand how can we give the information to the students in a way that they can process it? Because mm-hmm. everyone needs to receive the information in a slightly different way. But what we can't do is do the work for them. That's right. And that no matter how good we get at it, they've still, you know, that's, and that's a very tough thing to get across sometimes, I think. It is, absolutely. Um, it was one of the hardest things for me to accept <laughs> as an early teacher in my first few years here at Vanderbilt. Um, I, I wanted to be able to lead the horse to water and get them to drink uh, as well. And, uh, I, you know, I remember I had several really fantastic conversations with you um, and, and some other very sage, uh, uh, wise mentors that helped me understand that uh, you can only do what you can do. Um, it's your job to be a support and be a guide and tell them the truth. You know, I, I tell my students, essentially, you're paying me for the truth and my expertise, of course. But um, more than anything, it's for me to tell you the truth, uh, whether I think it's going to be easy to hear or difficult to hear. Um, and uh, that that's the most respectful thing that I can do for you is tell you actually the truth as I see it about your playing and about where you stand and and uh, all those kinds of things as well. But also, I think um, you hit on something which is. Uh, I think probably the best development from the last 10 to 15 years in terms of pedagogy is just the the greater understanding of uh, learning styles, of brain types, of um, of socioeconomic influences, of of uh, all sorts of different um, just humanistic influences of uh, that can create interference in in a student's. Uh, playing and and in their music making. And that's uh, one of the big things that I talk about. Uh, I have this body, mind, spirit method, and we do all these workshops and things like that. I have these videos. And one of the things that I talk about is that uh, very often the biggest thing in the way of a student uh, has nothing to do with their actual technical ability. It's mm-hmm. something that they're thinking about, something that they're focusing on that is not helpful and is, and is interfering. Um, and I've, I've experienced that a lot in my teaching uh, where I know that a student has that note. I know you have that note. And the only reason you're missing it is because you're afraid of it or you're convincing yourself that you're going to miss it. You're sort of rehearsing that tragedy in your mind before it even happens. And so at that moment, the answer is not work harder. The answer is not, you know, practice from midnight to four. The answer, in my opinion, is is doing that work and figuring out why why are you afraid of it and what are you afraid is going to happen if you miss it and those kinds of things can can be just as much interference as not having practiced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the biggest work that I do with students, I'm right, sort of like rolling my sleeves up and going at it now with the new students is, you know, they spend so much of their time on their own in a room practicing. Mm-hmm. And if they're not happy on their own, <laughs> they're keeping pretty bad company yeah yeah <laughs> you know the right. voice in their head needs to be that of a friendly grandparent not of a tyrant 
That's right. Um, you know, and, and that's job number one. If you can convince a student to be nice to themselves, <laughs> you know, um, that's right. then that's half of the battle, half the, of the battle won, I think. Really. And that's where I think just to not to flatter you or anything, but I think that's one of, uh, besides your trombone superpowers, I think that's your, as a human, I think that's one of your superpowers is just your ability to see, um, behind the facade of like what's really going on inside a person. Um, I think that's related to your ability to spot talent or um, I think you also can spot who's not going to be successful, but we won't go there. Um, I just think you have a really, you have a, a really great ability to, to read people. And I think you, you use that for good in, in your teaching. That's one of the biggest things I've learned from you as I've observed your teaching um, is your willingness to go there with a student, even a student that you've only just met. Uh, I don't know if you know this, that's not normal. <laughs> that's okay. really rare. That's really rare that a person can, can, can read a person and get it right. Uh, even only having just met someone, um, that's something I wish that I could do and I'm learning to do more. I think it is something you can learn to a degree, but I, I really think that's, that's your superpower pedagogically. My my mom, I would say, without a doubt, my mom was something called a savant. She could read mm. people, you know, so, so they say sort of reading people like a book, even to the point she wasn't very subtle about it. She'd meet someone and look at them and say, oh, you're not very nice, are you? And yeah. <laughs> you know, the first time she met them, she'd be like, mom, come on. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's a believing in the person. It's believing mm -hmm. in the individual. I, you know, we both know we're not teaching trombone players. We're teaching people. That's right. And, and I think what you've just sort of hinted at a little bit there is, is the, the teacher's slight frustration when you see the potential of a student that they themselves can't see. That yes. you see something in them that they don't and convincing them of that. I mean, the confused look on students' faces when I say, <laughs> you're amazing, you can really, and it's like, you're, but particularly these days where you're only supposed to be positive students, it's like, yeah, I've been hearing all, that all of my life. It's like, no, 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 listen, you can do this. This could be amazing. And it takes five or six months. And then all of a sudden it's like, they start to believe it. That's but right. Said, being honest. If you, That's right. if you say that and it's not correct and you don't mean it, it won't work. You know, I've, I've just seen you do that um, in master classes and different things with my students, with other students. And, and, and I, I, do, I do think it's, it may be one of the most painful things as a teacher when you see a person's potential that they themselves don't see um, or they say that they see it and then in there, but then they won't, you know, follow through on, on behavior that, that, you know, my friend Josh used to say to to believe something is is to behave as if it's actually true, and so I, you know students that might say they believe in themselves, but then they don't actually follow through with steps to that really show that uh, can be one of the most painful things, um, and that's where uh, sometimes I think. I annoy my students with how much I I come across as a cheerleader and and whatever. Uh, when they're in those places, but it's like, this is actually one of my primary things right now is to get you to believe in yourself. Because if you really don't, uh, then all the arbons and, and lip flexibilities and anything else we do are just are going to go to waste. Um, you're going to self-sabotage. Yeah. One of my really big pieces of work right now is to understand how they were raised, what their mm -hmm. relationship with their parents 
is like, and that's not to say whether they've been raised right, wrong, good or bad. It's just to understand what the home exactly. environment was like, you know, um, what, what their parents' work ethic was like with them. And, uh, you know, because, you know, there are all kinds of things that can come up, like the fear mm -hmm. of failing. That's right. You know, because they're told they mustn't fail. And so then that's going to change the angle that you go in, you know, to try and loosen them off a little bit. All that kind of stuff. But that that really makes a difference. I, I very often see also like um, I'm, I'm like a, I'm, a, I'm like I'm a lawyer. When you go and see a lawyer, they're being paid to act in your best interests. Yeah. And it's not a lot. I mean, it's not a lawyer's job to like or dislike the person in front of them. It's their job to act in their best interest. I mean, right. the fact as to whether I may like or dislike a student, I, I'd have to think about that. It doesn't occur to me. I mean, what an absurd question. I mean, I'm there, <laughs> right. I, I'm there to act on this person's behalf and in their best interests. And and when I hear of, of, of teachers who, you know, like or dislike, say, what a ridiculous thing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's irrelevant in terms of the, the quality of teaching and the quality of care and the quality of advice that they get. Yeah, um, it's it's relevant only, you know, internally and as you speak to your friends or whatever. Right? I mean, you're you're allowed to like or not like somebody, but in terms of how it influences your teaching, I think it's irrelevant. Yeah, it ought I to. Mean, be. I, I have to say, I mean, over thirty years, I'm just finishing now thirty years of teaching at this level. I started at the Royal Academy of Music in 1992. Um, I can't say that I've loved every single student I've had. But there's been some wonderful people in there, mm -hmm. bloody fantastic people who I'm still in contact with. You know, I know where every single one of them is. I know exactly what they're doing. And it's wonderful. It's, it's really beautiful. Jeremy, Vern Kagerais <laughs> seemed to me, I mean, he was a great guy and, and we all loved him, but he seemed to be Mr. Old fashioned style teacher, but he wasn't, was he? He really wasn't. He really wasn't. Uh, he had that available to him. And when the situation called for it, he could do that. Um, and, you know, for example, I mean, he could, I'm sure he could start a, a, a student 10 or 11 years old and get them the most wonderful basic foundation and could go all of those things and, and, and do all of those sort of old school, basic, fundamental teaching tricks, right, of the trade. Um, but at the moment that I was under his teaching and then throughout until he passed, he was just a wonderful friend and mentor to me. Um, he was really, he was rare in that even after he'd been doing it for decades at a very high level, he was willing to question everything and throw out a bad idea if he was convinced that it was now a bad idea. Uh, and to me, that takes a really special person. When you've spent 30 or 40 years saying one thing, and then you find that maybe that's not the most helpful way to say that, or maybe that maybe that's actually not helpful at all. I'm going to throw it away and go a different direction. And I kind of caught him at that place where he was really starting to, to question and and change some of the ways that he that he taught and the way he thought about brass pedagogy um and it did not always go over well amongst uh students amongst colleagues um but it was a really special part of him he really cared about people mm -hmm. um and um you know jan tells a story of 
his very last set of auditions that he did before he passed um, for, for, I mean, he was undergoing treatment. He didn't know it yet, but he had, you know, only months left to live and uh, he was exhausted all the time. And they had had a long day of auditions. North Texas is a huge program. Um, and they, they audition, you know, maybe hundred, uh, maybe hundreds of people each year. It was a very large number of people that audition there every year. And they had, they had heard people all day. And there was somebody who came in as the last audition of the day and it went very poorly. And, um, you know, it was pretty obvious that the student was, it was probably not going to work out for the student to go there. Um, and, and yet Vern talked to them. Uh, and you know, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do musically? And started and was giving them advice about music, about trombone, about life and stayed, you know, the full time, uh, that was just who he was. And he, he brought that level of dedication and that level of care to everybody he worked with. I, I just, uh, a Vern story here, obviously I got to know him quite well as well, but this is quite a, quite an interesting story. In the um, at the ITF in Birmingham in 2006, 2006, um, I was judging one of the competitions and Vern came to me and said, I'm afraid there are only two candidates in the next. There should have been three. Unfortunately, the uh, the girl, the, the, the third candidate, um, she's had a playing breakdown. She's she's torn a muscle in her face and can't play. And mm. she wanted to come and personally apologize to you, but she's she's outside crying and she wouldn't mind, you know, if you wouldn't mind, but she sends her deepest apologies, you know. And, and I said, well, look, please tell her, you know, if she ever wants to talk, that's, I'm, I'm really so sorry. And that person is sitting about five yards away from me right now. She's my wife. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, know that. that. Yeah, that's right. That was the first kind of distanced way of, 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 of that we didn't actually meet, but I was yeah. aware of, I didn't even know her name. Wow. Um, but, wow. But with Vern, you know, I think, and this is a personal thing, I, I guess my feelings of, of loyalty and stuff, Vern for me was the ITA. He, or the ITF, he was, he was so involved in it. Mm -hmm. And there were other people at that time who were just part of it. And, and it kind of just doesn't seem the same to me anymore. But I guess that's just a generational change that he just felt like a fact. He was, Vern was like family to me, really, I think, you know? Yeah, in, in terms of that organization, I, I have said this a few times in a few different ways. Um, and I'm happy to say it here again, which is I think anyone who plays a trombone ever, for the rest of time, um, owes Vern a great, a great debt of gratitude in, in one way or another, whether they realize it or not. Uh, because he, uh, through his service, uh, to the ITA and to the ITF and to the ITA journal mm -hmm. the competitions, all of those things, um, really changed the landscape of, of several different things for our instrument and, and his, his service to the trombone was just immeasurable. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like in terms of the ITF, he had uh, been a long time institution and I'll just say, I think his, you know, his, uh, his legacy, uh, does live on, even though his presence of course is missed, but, um, yeah, it, it, it isn't, it isn't quite the same without him. Um, 
it, it, you know, uh, that was, and that was just who he was. I mean, almost nothing that his fingerprints are on are the same without him. Um, he was just a, a very special uh, person. Um, yeah. Walt Whitman poem, in mm -hmm. the end, all that remains are personal qualities. That's and right. It's all of these people who have departed from us now. You know, when when I think of Maurice Murphy, who, who, who died, you know, probably the most talented brass player I ever worked with and, were, and heard live, certainly the greatest first trumpet player I ever played with. And I did work with Adolf Hirsith, I'll have you know. Um, <laughs> and when I, his playing is amazing and everyone wants, wants to know about what it was like to work with him, but it's still the look in his eye that makes me cry. It's mm. still who, it's who he was. That's right. Not what he did, it's who he was. Yeah. And I think when you go through life, I think it's for all of these wonderful things that we try and do, the best we can do is to try and make ourselves the best human being we can possibly be. You know? That's right. And uh, any success that we have is going to be an outpouring of that. Yeah. 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 Uh, any anyway, real gonna, lasting success anyway. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of move forward and miss a lot of stuff out. We were in Vienna together. We did a lot of great stuff together. Um, you were, you know, kind of like my, my dream team second trombone player. We had telepathy, it worked, it was <laughs> fantastic. You, 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 made, you made the sound and I, and I bit on top of it. I was very, you know, but the, the, the sound just worked really well complimented for anyone listening jeremy and i don't play the same well we play the same way we don't make the same sound yeah jeremy makes this beautiful warm sort of sound and, and i'm kind of more zingy and exciting and so rather than matching we complimented yes our sounds became greater than the sum of their parts now so we, we did all of those wonderful things together and um you were always great to sit next to because you were most mostly very calm. Mostly, you know, <laughs> it's like if, if I had something difficult to to play, you know, I was sitting next to this this very calming influence who didn't you have to say anything. Just was very. I I, I spent a week a couple of years ago with Phil Smith, mm -hmm. um, former first trumpet player in the New York Philharmonic. And I really could see why Joe loved him so much because it was just yeah. like when you sat next to him, you just relaxed. He's a calming presence. Yeah, yes. it's incredible, incredible. Anyway, I'm going to fast, 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 fast forward. Okay, Jeremy Wilson, how old were you when you went to Vanderbilt? I was 29, actually, when I left and, and came to Vanderbilt. Okay, now you can't tell me that that was A, an easy de decision, or B, one that you haven't questioned a lot after the time because... When you're on your own, when you're on planet Wilson in that room in Vanderbilt, living your own life as this pedagogue without connection to all of these great musicians that you used to have, without staying in the world's greatest hotels, and you're dealing with the problems of 18 and 19 year olds, granted wonderful 18 and 19 year olds, I'm the same. What was your answer to yourself when you thought, what the heck have I done? <laughs> yes um it was it was really difficult at first um it was so difficult that there are there were there are many times that i look back and i think how did i actually make the decision in the first place because 
when the opportunity came to come back to my home state and plug into this wonderful university uh, and make a complete sea change in terms of career from full-time performer to full-time teacher, like I, I, I took the opportunity and I was really sure about it. And, but then I, the first two or three or four years was so difficult for me that I, I now look back and go, how was I ever so sure? Uh, I mean, now I'm sure again that I've made the right choice for me and for my family, but it was extremely difficult. Um, for one, for one reason, uh, it was the, the studio here at Vanderbilt. Uh, it was a rebuilding project essentially i was i was that was part of why i was interested in it but i don't think i quite realized just what i had gotten myself into until i got here you know i was i was very interested in being able to build something that's my own and build it hopefully you know to use a, a joe bidenism build back better right and try to to build something that was truly good and sustainable um and i saw the enormous potential uh of the of the program here which I feel like now has actually been realized, but um, it, 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 I was not prepared for how hard it was those first few years when, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I'm sitting in a lesson with a student and just six months before I was playing Brahms one with you and Mark Gall uh, under the baton of Janssen's at the Salzburg Festspiel and, or, you know, a year before I was, you know, touring the world and, playing in all these these great venues and things um if it weren't for my family and how happy they were to be back stateside and how much they were thriving in the first two or three years I, there were many times that i really thought about going back um uh and trying to go back to the orchestra life or that i regretted what i had done um but it was only because uh, really two things uh one is I had not been able to really build the studio, build the platform that I wanted. Um, uh, just a little bit of backstory. So when I when I came to the Vienna Philharmonic, it was my hope that maybe at some point I could build the kind of career that that well, I guess the kind of career that I have now, but really the kind of career that that you had for a long time in terms of being mostly an orchestral player but you're making solo CDs and you get to make chamber music and you get to go and, and you, you did do a lot of teaching and, um, and had students that were working with you regularly. I also think of what Joel Lessie has or what Jim Markey has or what uh, Jürgen von Rien has, where they have an orchestral you know, foundation and that's like their full-time gig, but then they have all these other things. And th there was a part of me that thought, okay, that's what I'll do. Like I got, I'll get tenure in the orchestra and then maybe I'll see if I can get a teaching job. Maybe I can start a solo career, whatever. But the, the complicating factor is, as you know, that that orchestra just works so much, right. tours a lot. And uh, I was quite young. So I was starting my family right at that moment as well. And so any free time that I had, uh, I was wanting to spend with my family uh, who were quite isolated and quite unhappy. Um, and I just was not satisfied with the amount of time that I was getting to see my family. So it became really obvious that if I stay here, even though I love the job, I'm good at it, and it's so much fun, um, I it, that will be the only thing in my life, musically. It's either, you know, it, it'll be my family and the orchestra. 
okay. Uh, and so I saw the opportunity to come here as essentially I'm going to be giving up the world's greatest orchestra, but I saw it as an opportunity to get everything else. Um, I, my family can be happier. Um, I can have that teaching that I wanted ever since I saw Mr. Holland's opus. I can maybe start a solo career, do chamber music, do jazz, do, you know, and do those kinds of things. What I wasn't prepared for is that, you know, nobody was just going to hand me all of those things on a silver platter in year one. You know, there was, there was this young, naive part of me that kind of thought I, I'm, I'm going to come back to a ticker tape parade and confetti and fireworks and a giant banner that says, welcome Jeremy Wilson, you know, and, uh, and then I'm going to be beating the great students off with a stick. And, uh, you know, it, they're just going to come to me in droves and people are going to be coming to me wanting, you know, please record solo CDs for us. You know, um, it just doesn't work that way. I was not prepared to hustle. I was not prepared to build my own platform. You really helped me with a lot of that too. I, I remember calling you at some point and you said, if you want solo stuff, you're going to have to go pursue it. You're going to have to call people up, call contacts and go, let me come play. Let me come do a concert. Let me come do a concerto or whatever. You're going to have to build your own platform. People are not going to build it for you. Um, and then from a recruiting standpoint, uh, because we have an undergrad only program at Vanderbilt, my target audience are high school students and the vast majority of high school students in the States, uh, when you show up and go, Hey, I played in the Vienna Philharmonic, they go, okay. And, uh, they just don't care. Um, if you haven't played in Chicago or, or New York or, or, you know, the orchestras that they know, um, okay. So what? Um, and so I had to find other ways to get on their radar. And that's where I started, you know, commissioning music and recording my CDs, doing my YouTube projects, all of those kinds of different things. Um, and then things like the Aries Quartet really helped with that kind of thing as well. But it was just, it was just extremely difficult. I just was not prepared for how much I was going to have to personally build that part of my career. I would say, I mean, I, I feel as I can, if anyone's wondering, I can set the record straight here. Uh, Jeremy Wilson is um, the best American orchestral first trombone player not currently sitting in an American orchestra. Um, I, for me, it, it is there is little doubt that um, had you chosen to continue your orchestral career in the US, you would now be sitting in a very prominent position and still could be if you wanted to, but you've built this. I remember when you started in, in Vanderbilt, I said, it's going to take five years. It's going to take you five yeah. years to get that class where you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And that's optimistic. It takes a long time to put your own sort of like philosophy on, onto a class, but you've done it. The last time I was with you was just before we all got locked down. And and I said to you, I said, congratulations, you're, you're there. It's wonderful class. <laughs> um, really, really lovely, wonderful attitude of the students. And you know, the, the hallmark of a caring professor is the interaction of, of the students, how they speak to each other. Mm. It's also the stewardship element of it is very important, you know? Um, so, <clears throat> so yes, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can only sort of slightly chip in, chip in on that a little bit. I think for me coming to Bern mm -hmm. was the worst career move I ever made in my life. Mm. Um, that's, separate to the teaching the class is wonderful the, the job i have there is incredible 
I cannot, but I, it's almost embarrassing that so many good players trust my opinion. You know, the class now, right now is incredible. But as for being in a big metropolis, rubbing shoulders with composers and conductors, mm -hmm. and stuff, I am at the foot of foot of the Alps here. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we, we, you'd need to be in London or New York or whatever the whole time. Mm -hmm. It was, however, the best life move that I ever made. Yeah. I guess it's the same for you, you know? Yes. I mean, 100%. I'm in a difficult situation now because we've had this this kind of lockdown. We've had our careers destroyed for 18 months, basically. Mm -hmm. For someone like me who's, yeah. who's traveling six months of the year and that stopped. And I still have some wonderful projects starting up now, but the you know, the the big gaps between them, mm -hmm. which makes it even more difficult because it's like I just conducted the first you know, concert in a series of the New World Symphony in Miami. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I do, that that was like three weeks ago now, in two weeks, I'm conducting, conducting a big Wagner project in London. This is not a small deal thing. And then two weeks after that, I've got a trombone day for the Israel Philharmonic. You can't turn up out of shape, you know. Yeah, that's I'm right. Playing the, I'm playing the Rachmaninoff cello sonata in three recitals, you know. You've got to be on top, top form to be able to do it. And it's like, like you're saying about fighting, I'm now picking up the phone now and really working to reestablish things and, and get solos back in the book. But this part of me thinks, yeah, but the last 18 months has been quite nice, hasn't it? <laughs> That's true. He's That's like, true. hang on, they're opening the borders now. France is an hour that way. Germany's mm -hmm. an hour that way. Oh, that's not much use. Um, Italy's an hour and a half that way, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm 57, but I'm too I'm too young to slow down too much just yet, so I'll be fighting to. to uh, hey, hey! Don't we have a piece to play? Isn't um, yeah the 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 Moya Ricardo Moya. Moya. That's right. He's he's I think he's finished it now. Um, really? it, it, yeah, okay. I think it's it's a really interesting concept where he was commissioned um, by Dr. Joe Awad, who's a great friend of both of ours, um, to write this piece. That poor guy. Every time I get a headache, I call him up. He's a doctor. <laughs> he's turned he's it like, to your personal no, concierge no, doctor. My, my big toe hurts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's between you and him. But I I also just enjoy a great friendship with him, and um, and he's just very passionate about music and about trombone and about you know, putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. And um, he has, uh, you know, commissioned some new work. He just commissioned two new works by Kevin Day that I premiered at the ITF and that are going to be on my next album. And, um, but this this concerto, it, the way it's sort of uh, designed is it can be done with two tenors or a tenor and a bass. Um, and he's uh, he's a, a great supporter of mine, and so the idea is that the the two tenor version you and I would do together, and that the tenor and bass version I would do with uh, Mr. Jim Markey. Uh, now, as far as when and where and how, no idea. But uh, you and I got to talk offline about that at some point because. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, it's going to be, I, I really love his writing and, um, I, I think whatever he's written for us is going to be a hit. So we need to find a, a place to play it at some point. Right. Jeremy, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do it. I've got, I've got two questions for you and they're nerdy trombone questions. <laughs> you see, I, I don't know whether you heard the interview that I did with Rex Martin. I did. But I asked him two questions. So here they come. Jeremy Wilson, the embouchure. <laughs> How important is it? It's um, in terms of function, it's extremely important. 
um, in terms of how we focus on it, um, it changes over time. If I can be that vague. Do you discuss it with students? It depends. I think just as, as we were talking about, we, there's actually been a common thread through a lot of our conversation. One is musically context is everything. Uh, personally context is everything. When you're working with a student, knowing who they are and where they've been and what they've come from and, 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 and how they think and how they learn context is everything. And I think uh, that goes down to the nitty gritty level as well. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in a one size fits all embouchure um, in that all the embouchures will be the same. I think it's extremely, it, there are going to be some common characteristics and that, um, and, but that it's extremely personalized. One of the great disadvantages we have as brass teachers is that so much of sound production is hidden from our view and we have to guess what's actually going on inside the mouth and things like that. Now the embouchure is a little different in that we can see some external signs of, of things that are happening behind the mouthpiece. Uh, and of course, things like Lexon mouthpieces and cutaway rims and all those kind of things are attempts to try to see, but it's still not exactly the same all the way. Um, I think the things that we observe about the embouchure, we have to be careful about the conclusions that we draw from it. Uh, I think some of the things that we think are causes of great embouchures are actually the symptoms of great embouchures. Uh, for example, um, some of the focus on the corners um, depend, you know, and I'm and I'm not a person who never talks about the corners ever with anybody, uh, but I think sometimes the focus of attention goes uh, so heavily on that because it's one of the few observable points that we have. To, to be able to observe an embouchure. But uh, I think that the corners are not the cause of a great embouchure. I think they're the symptom of a, of a great embouchure in that that's what humans do when they're putting a really focused airstream through a hole. Any human on the planet, you give them a straw and say, blow air through this straw, and they're going to make something that's suspiciously like a brass embouchure uh, with the corners of their mouth. And I think you know, telling a student, for example, to pull down the corners of their mouth as forcefully as they can is akin to you know the person who goes to a tennis match and goes you see serena williams every time she hits a really great shot she grunts and so all you have to do to be a great tennis player is grunt really loudly and it's like the loud grunt is not the cause it's the symptom of the effort right and so um uh that's i could go i could go on a long time about I this know, but I, but uh, <laughs> absolutely fantastic answer that was that was so much crystallized information in there. I, I totally yeah. agree. That was yeah. fantastic. I mean, I, I did put you on the spot. It's a difficult one when someone throws yeah. that straight at you. <laughs> I mean, I look at it, I look at it like uh, when you go to Ikea to buy a mm. table. Yeah. You know, we all know what a table looks like. We try and build it. And if that doesn't work, we need to open the instruction manual. Yes. And and that's my attitude to, to students. Mm -hmm. I will give them the information as and when they need it and as much of it as they need. And if they don't need any, I'm not going to tell them. Right. Um, you know, but you know, that's absolutely fantastic. Really, I think really uh, I will, I will talk to a student about their embouchure if there's a dysfunction and I have a, I have a really high bar for what functional means as I know you do too, you know, functional yeah. means it will work reliably um, and sustainably. Uh, and I have a very high bar for that. I think if it has reached that bar, then don't mess with it. You know, I, 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 there are two bits of information there that are really, that, that, that is really important on the embouchure. The first thing, the one that really started to make me think was my great friend, Jim Watson, 
um, trumpet player, was in Philip Jones Brass Ensemble. He had the worst embouchure I have ever seen <laughs> on, on a professional, uh, how you would define an embouchure. He played on the red part of his top and bottom lip, and he put his trumpet on sideways and twisted it. And he played. It was absolutely the worst. Wow. That if you, it was about as it was about exactly what you would teach if you tell someone what not to do. And he could play a melody that mm. literally would make you cry. Yeah. So the question, you know, what is a good embouchure? I mean, yeah. what it was he absolutely beautiful. And then of course someone who we know, Wolfgang Tombuck, who was mm -hmm. first horn in the Vienna Philharmonic, who was like, You bloody well wouldn't teach that one. But, no, but that's right. Have I ever heard anyone play Heldenleben or the closing scenes of Capriccio like that? No. No. You know, and, it's like, and may, okay, may so never I, may never hear someone play no. it. No. And, <laughs> and that kind of redefines what an homage is. Yeah. The other thing, and this is what I, I'm really a little bit concerned about these days is so much of teaching, particularly in the States, has trickled down from Arnold Jacobs, mm -hmm. or not so much trickled down as like it's a waterfall. <laughs> now, as, as Rex Martin said, you know, of course, the embouchure is important. I'm working on it every minute of every lesson, but the student doesn't need to know that I'm doing that. Exactly. So what we have now is several generations of teachers who say, well, my teacher never talked about the embouchure, so I'm not going to. But what they don't realize is the master who taught them was fixing their embouchure and they never got around mm -hmm. to telling them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really, really an important thing to take on board. The embouchure is important. The functionality of it is important. How we get there is not important and it's unique to almost every individual. Yeah. Um, um, and like you say, it's more of a side effect type thing. Um, but I well, think I, we do I, have a problem where people are saying the embouchure is not important. It is important. It is important. Yeah. I think our focus of attention on it when we're playing is 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 not always so super helpful. Um, I think it no, can, no, 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 no. but uh, but I I totally agree that um, it's one of the reasons that I talk to my students about even those that that have a really well functioning embouchure. Um, the question that I that I am always asking and and seeing if I can lead them to is. Uh, can we get that great functioning embouchure to function even better? Um, I mean, when I, I won a job in the Vienna Philharmonic with an embouchure that, I, I don't know if you said it, Hans, I think Hans called it a miracle embouchure. I don't know how, what he meant by that, but it was, I mean, it was apparently pretty good in terms of how it looked or how it functioned. And yet I I had endurance issues. I had all sorts of different things because there were still tweaks that, that could have been made. There were still places where I was working harder than I needed to, different things like that. Um, I don't feel like I got my real embouchure until about five years ago, maybe six, um, uh, after I had already left and come back to, to Vienna or to Vanderbilt, rather. Um, and so I'm always talking to my students about, uh, is there more that we can do in terms of efficiency, getting the most result out of the least amount of effort, um, uh, and, uh, I also, uh, especially, you know, a few of the students that I've had that, that, you know, uh, where I was a little bit afraid to talk about embouchure too much. And some of my experiences with those students now in the last, especially three years, uh, every student that comes through, I, I try to make sure that even if they don't have personally embouchure dysfunction, 
that they still understand how the embouchure works and how that you can get the body into those ideal conditions because at some point it might break down or they might develop an issue and they need to know that it's important and and how it can work and and also so that we don't perpetuate exactly what you talked about where it's like hey my teacher never talked to me about embouchure so therefore i'm going to draw the conclusion that it's not important um so yeah i think that's uh that's a a, a big a big thing yeah for for the any teachers listening um you will know that this is a bigger can of worms than than even we're hinting at <laughs> i currently have one student who wants to know more about the physicality of his embouchure than I want to talk to him about. I mean, he's like, yes. you know, I, I, I really don't think we not, and he needs to know. His brain works in a, such a way, he wants to know exactly what he should be doing with his tongue. And I, I don't like talking about that. Yeah. And yet, if I go back a few years, there was one student I had where I said, yeah, we, let's just look at that sound on the F harmonic there. You hear it's going mm -hmm. a little bit nasal. And he fell to pieces. And understanding oh, wow. the different way that people's brains work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is is really the big part. Like you say, reading someone, what information yeah. can they take, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think um, I think it all goes back to you know what is the sound that you want to make, and, and the students that that really feel like they need to know. I need to know every minute detail of how it all works. Um, what I really work on with those students is learning to trust their subconscious more, um, helping them. The, the information that I give them is not the information they're seeking, but I give them information about how motor skills are acquired uh, because there are so many things that we all do every day. Um, even the people that are listening right now are doing things um, that they actually don't know how they do them. They trust their subconscious and they trust their body to make the might new decisions. None of us actually know how we walk. We don't actually know how we ride a bike. We don't actually know how we eat with chopsticks or, or write our names. Um, we know whether we've done something well or not, and we know whether we've gotten the desired result or not, but we don't actually know what our body is doing to do that. But then we get the instrument on our face and we want to micromanage right. and take responsibility for decisions that the rest of our, and, and, and it, it comes from the scientific method. It comes from the way we're taught other things where it's completely knowledge based, but obviously there's a lot of knowledge that goes into playing the trombone, but it's at its core, it's a motor skill. And it, it, uh, it lives in the same part of the brain as, as, you know, swinging a cricket bat, you know, um, and you can create ideal conditions and you can know what you want to to result but you don't actually know how you swing a cricket bat <laughs> you know it you trust your body to make the minute decisions um and so that's what i those students that are so hungry for that information i just i i open the fire hose and throw information at them about how their brain works and it's like because of that you don't actually need to know this <laughs> and and because when we try to handle those things in our conscious brains we will 100 percent of the time get it wrong in terms of uh we'll use five percent too much energy or we'll calculate five too much you know you're, you're, you'll be pulling your corners down five percent too much more than is needed you'll be arching your tongue five percent too much you know if you do it consciously, you'll almost always get it wrong. And if your subconscious is allowed to do that over time, um, you know, uh, I think uh, the 
the I think one of the biggest mistakes, at least in the states, that is made with brass players is we start by micromanaging everything, yeah, and then we never teach our students that over time, the ideal trajectory is that you start turning over more of that responsibility to your subconscious. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Right. Okay, back on the spot. Okay, do it. The abdominals speak. <laughs> Uh, what about them? Okay. Um, do you <laughs> they're, use they're support? Do you, um, do you tell your students not to think about them? Or do you tell your students to think about them and keep them relaxed? Three options. Um, I think uh, what I usually do is uh, our focus of attention is never on the abdominals um, unless there's some sort of dysfunction caused by the abdominals right. um in in normal functional playing uh the abdominals will react however your subconscious decides they need to react to produce the airstream that your subconscious decides it needs to produce to produce the sound that your conscious brain has decided that's what your conscious brain is really good at um I think I relate it a lot to singing and a lot to speaking as well, because we all have literally millions of hours of speaking and singing under our belts and in our brains, uh, some more than others. Some have lived a little bit longer than others. Um, but <laughs> but uh, even even as a young player at f 14, 15 years old, we all have a vast data library of how to take internal thoughts and turn them into external sounds. Uh, using air past a vibrating membrane. Um, the air starts in the same place. The vibrating membrane is the vocal cords in that case, rather than a, a lips that vibrate. But the point is, your body is actually really, really good at making those minute decisions. And um, if you, if I back up from the microphone and I go, hey, and I scream really loudly, uh, I will notice that my abdominals clenched when I did that. Um, I didn't clench them consciously. Uh, my body did that because my desire was to say something really loud or to shout, you know, something like that. So um, I feel like that the any any uh, work or non-work that the abdominals do um, is uh, entirely the domain of the subconscious obeying the will of the conscious brain. I do think, um, I, I do talk to students and get, and try to get them to notice, um, tension, unneeded tension in their abdominals, just from their posture standpoint, yep. because if students are standing with their weight, not perfectly centered over their spine or over their feet, um, their abdominal muscles are necessarily going to be tightened in some way just to keep them upright. I mean, it's just a function of balance um, that if you start, if you stand on one leg, for example, you will notice that your abdominals um, tighten. Um, or if you, if your head gets off center and you slump forward, your, your abdominals will tighten again, just to keep you upright. Um, and so uh, we, we sometimes will look at posture uh, and balance. Um, now I myself, and I know you are as well, when I'm on stage playing a piece, I'm a mover and a shaker. I'm all over the place. And you'll, you know, my, my balance is not always perfectly centered, but if, if there's a difficult bit coming up, if there's some place where I really need to be relaxed, you will see me and I, and I've seen you perform too. I can, I can always tell when you're really wanting to concentrate on a difficult bit because you all of a sudden the dancing stops, 
the leaning over stops and you yeah. go perfect posture, perfectly balanced to make sure that the body's in the ideal position for that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Great answer. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, we've talked about <laughs> a heck of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, where should we go now? What should we talk about now? You know, we've been talking for like an hour and 30. I know. This is why we should talk more often. <laughs> I know. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Okay. Um, I'm out. They're my, they're my <laughs> questions. Uh, I'll tell you what, you ask me a bloody question and then we'll finish. How about that? Well, no, the, the question that I have for you um, is, you know, as you've changed careers or changed focuses of your career um, after such a long time of doing one main job and then having a lot of side interests, um, what's the what's the thing that has surprised you the most? The thing that you weren't expecting um, when you, for example, took the job at Barron, went to you know a, a greater pie slice of your life being teaching and uh, a much smaller pie slice being orchestral playing, what was something that you expected that didn't happen or that you didn't expect that did happen either professionally, musically, trombonically, or personally? I think, okay, that's a, that's, there's lots of different answers to that. I think you've, all, you've already answered, you've already said one of those for me, that mm -hmm. the world is not going to be waiting outside your front door to offer you recording <laughs> contracts and yep. concertos. And the fact that I am a hustler, I can do it if I want to. Um, I'm also uh, English, so I find it somewhat ungentlemanly to do it. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, there's, there's that. Um, I... Um, have been really be found it really beautiful to realize that the one thing that's consistent that remains through all of this is my love of picking up the trombone and making a sound mm. and that um, it can always be there in my life if I want it to be and uh, just focusing on the fact that that's what I love doing um, and also the love of, it's gonna sound very weird now, but the older I get, the love of hearing the wind blow through trees mm -hmm. and a certain, the smell of spring in the air or a hot summer's day. Um, those are the things that I, I re over the years, I've learned to love nature more and more and more mm. and more. The beauty of life around me and the beauty of human interaction. I am very glad. I found it difficult to stop being Ian Bowsfield, Principal Trombone of the Vienna Philharmonic. I found that tough to start with, to be nobody, mm -hmm. as it were. But I'm not nobody now, I'm me. And what That's I have right. is mine. It's mine. It doesn't belong to an institution. Yeah. No, nobody says Ian Valsfield, professor of trombone at the Hochschule de, Hochschule de Kunst of Bern. It's like it's like it's not seen as a big, mm -hmm. you know, a big a big award kind of thing. You know, it's and so what I have is mine. <laughs> so I went through all of these different phases. Um, so surprise me. Hmm. No, I don't think it's I don't think it, it surprised me. Um, 
but the love of playing the trombone that started when I was seven years old, I guess that has surprised me. It hasn't worn off at all. Not at all. Not one single bloody percent from the age of seven to 57. Hey, I've been playing the trombone 50 years. I never realized that. I'd said that's an anniversary. There we go. So, so no. No, I, I guess that, that's probably a terrible answer. I think it's a great answer. But that's, that's, about, that's about it, I think. I think, no, hang on. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what has surprised me. I never thought I would become as obsessed with pedagogy as mm. I am. Yeah. I, I mean, I was still playing, up until this pandemic, I was still playing and traveling a lot. But year on year on year, my obsession with how people learn mm -hmm. and my obsession with helping people has just grown and grown. And it's like after 30 years of teaching, I finally now think I might be doing a decent job. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough thing. Teaching is a very difficult thing to learn. But, it is. I mean, that's, that's what Vern used to say uh, every time he would learn something new or something. He says, I feel like the people from the first 25 or 30 years of my career deserve a refund because yeah, I yeah, actually yeah. now kind of know what I'm doing. You yeah, know? I've said I mean, if you, you know, when you, when there's a, when there's like an air mm -hmm. traffic incident or whatever, they always say it was a pilot of 10,000 flying hours experience. <laughs> and it's the same as every yep. hour that we give. Mm -hmm. If you are if you are a conscientious teacher, every lesson you give is a learning opportunity for the teacher. That's right. That's um, right. Not just the student. Um, have so, have so you ever had Have you ever had students that come in? I bet you have. But have you ever had a student that comes in and they've been working with you for two or three years, and they say something like, "I feel like I'm getting worse." Or I feel like I was better when I started. <laughs> I love it. That's that's the happiest day of my life. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you can, cause I, what I love to do is bring up a recording of them when they started and go, yeah. okay, listen to this. And about 30 seconds in, they go, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, I'm clearly better. Stop it. Stop it. You know, yeah, no, it's, it's that it's, their it's, standards are getting higher and their awareness is getting better. It's a joyous moment in my teaching room when a student comes and says, Ian, look, this is just not working. I mean, I was so happy when I came here, but you know, this has got worse and this has got worse. And, and it's just, I just can't play. Listen. And mm. they play, so I just burst out laughing. It's like, you're not getting worse. You can now just hear what I could always hear. That's right. <laughs> and, and, the minute they, and the minute they start to, because you, how can somebody improve something mm -hmm. if they don't know what it is that's got to get better? Now, obviously, by saying this is not good this is not good this is, that's not the way to do it you know it's totally right. negative but but by the way of showing them what integrity of articulation and musicianship is all of a sudden that direct week by week comparison they suddenly they suddenly think oh, no my playing and it's like mm -hmm. it's a moment of realization and that's the point that they explode that's the point that, that they exactly really i also love the the moment when and the number of big time players, really famous players who said to me, I just know I'm never going to win a job. I just can't win auditions. I just yep. had another one before the summer, three weeks later. He's, he's the academist in the Vienna Philharmonic now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, right. so it's, 
you know, they're, they're, they're happy moments. You know? I think, I think that same kind of thing can happen to a teacher, you know, because I, what you were just talking about that, um, the more hours you get, the more things you've tried and, and the more, the more experience you have, um, it's like, it's weird because each year that goes by, I intellectually know that, I mean, I must be getting better at this. I mean, I'm, we're, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm helping people and I feel like I do know more than I used to know, but then also you start to open up with how much there still is yet to know. And, and, uh, um, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful and natural part of growing as a person, you know, as well. Uh, I think speaking to, I, I thought your answer to my surprise question was actually perfect because I think it's going to do a lot of good for anybody hearing this. Maybe that's a young person that, you know, that hears, um, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't get, you know, more respected and more famous and obviously more capable than you in terms of trombone players in the world. And if, you know, people are not, you know, clamoring and knocking down your door, please come do, you know, recording with us. Or, you know, if if you have to also build your own platform, I mean, that's just so instructive, because I think sometimes young people assume that the reason nobody's coming and knocking down their door is because they don't have anything to offer. And it's just, it's just not the case. I mean, I guess sometimes it might be the case, but more often than not, it's, if somebody's at that level where they've worked hard and they've actually built something, um, they are going to have to hustle a little bit, um, not for not for their worthiness, not for um, anything. It's just about building that, that network and going out and building your own platform. It just takes a while before it will be self-sustaining if, if it ever gets to that point. Yeah. Um, I think uh, jumping back to something you said uh, earlier, when you you told me that uh, it was going to take five years minimum to to do anything here at that moment i did not want to hear that and i was you know it's <laughs> like no he doesn't I, i'll do it faster than that but it turns out you're exactly right you know i mean it was about five years before we started to see success and uh now it's been 10 years and it's you know it's actually starting to be somewhat sustaining you know like it's yeah. it, the ball is rolling down the hill yeah. 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 So you actually do know what you're talking about. There you go. <laughs> On some things. Anyway, Jeremy, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea with my... I'm a bit it's kind of late night-ish here, so I'm going to go and have a cup of tea with um, my wife and uh, get ready for a day's teaching tomorrow. Uh, are you teaching tomorrow? Are you? I am, yes. I'm teaching all day tomorrow, and then I'm in Kansas City for the rest of the week. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm doing a residency at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. So that'll be fun. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Hope you've enjoyed that. Thanks for sticking with us. It's been a long podcast this time. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. These conversations, by the way, we've recorded this one, but and this has been a bit more of an interview type thing, but we do talk like this every it's now true. and then, don't we? That's yep. true. And it's always enriching and life-giving, and I always love it. And uh, see, I mean, one of the – that maybe the only – really deep regret I have is like, uh, really not getting to be around you, uh, every day, every week, uh, uh, in the orchestra, but it just makes it sweeter when we do get a chance to, to catch up. So really, really appreciate you and your precious family and, um, taking the time to invite me onto your awesome podcast. Likewise, Jeremy Wilson. Thank you very, very much.
So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff. Thank you.